On this first day of 2023, we return to the book of Romans. Paul is written to the mostly divided Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, He's written to tell them that every person in the world is enslaved to king sin. Since God in his wrath has given all people over to their own passions and desires. Therefore, God's law, which no one, not even the most pious Jewish person, has kept perfectly enough to meet God's standard, condemns everyone to death for falling short of it. God did this in order to increase sin and thereby magnify for every person the reality of their predicament as rebels against God. We are all condemned to death apart from Jesus Christ. But in His great mercy, God has reconciled the world to Himself in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who by obeying the law perfectly and submitting to God's will in our place by dying at the cross and rising again from the dead has become our forgiveness and our righteousness. This is the objective reality of the gospel. So once Paul establishes how and why the gospel is the power of God for salvation in chapters 1 to 4, from chapters 5 to 11, he teaches its implications for us as it pertains to our assurance and our hope. And so as we come into chapter 8 this morning, Paul has established that when we were baptized into Christ, a change of lordship took place inside of us. We are no longer under the reign of King Sin. We are under, as believers, the lordship of Christ in this new person that has been created inside of us by the Holy Spirit. However, however, that new person of the Spirit exists alongside, within the old person that we were and have always been before we were baptized into the death of Jesus and raised with Him to new life. In chapter 7, if you can remember, back in November before we headed into Advent, Paul confessed that even he, the great apostle, lives in this tension. He uses his own ongoing struggle as an apostle of Jesus Christ with sin to show that believers are simul justus et peccator, right? Simultaneously saint and sinner. Simultaneously justified and simultaneously sinful. While the Spirit is alive in us, yes, our dead flesh still wants to reign. The desires of our flesh will not go away. And the result in each believer is civil war. This new desire to obey God's law in us and the complete inability to do so that we now realize we have. This is a staggering revelation that the Bible actually tells us this, that a Christian should not, therefore, try to find his or her hope in eventually being able to look at oneself and look at one's own performance and thereby say, now I know that I'm a Christian. Now I can be sure that I stand right with God. Now I know God is pleased with me. Look at how good I am or look at how much better I am now than I used to be. Instead, if we're honest, the reality of the Christian life, no matter how long we've lived it, is a struggle that if we make into our focus, will utterly destroy our hope. So Paul returns to the reality of the gospel in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. What is his hope? God will deliver him 
and all who have been baptized into Christ from this body of death in which we will live until either we die or he returns for us. The conclusion then, bringing us into chapter 8 this morning, is the unchangeable present reality of the Christian life with the mind. In Scripture here in Romans, that is the inward me, the new me of the Spirit of God. With my mind, I serve the law of God. That is now I desire to obey Him and to submit to Him. But with the flesh, the me that I can see when I look in the mirror, I still serve the law of sin. And even though we've been baptized into Christ and are God's own children, we still willingly give the authority to rule our lives often to King Sin. So Paul has more to say about our lives now, our existence now in these bodies. Beloved, despite this ongoing war between the old and the new in us, we live with a sure and certain hope this morning in the promise of future resurrection because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us now. Let me pray and we'll walk through these first verses. Father, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for Your unchanging promise and great faithfulness here on this first day of a new year. Lord, how I pray that You would guide our thoughts, that You would guard our hearing this morning. Please be with me and enable me to preach Your Word in truth, in consistency with the passage. And God, please help all to hear and to believe. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, without whom none of that will happen. Amen. By the way, I'm going to begin reading now in this year from the New King James instead of the ESV. Just an FYI for you. Verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, yes, right now, there is a civil war going on in me that makes me feel dirty and not justified between the flesh and the Spirit. We know this from 725. I have a new desire in me, given by the Holy Spirit, to obey God's holy, righteous, and good law. But Paul says, I do not have the ability to carry out those desires to obey God. God has given me the eyes to love His law, to desire to obey Him, but in 7.18, He has not given me the ability to do that. God has not given me any ability that will make me forget or deny or put aside the desperate need I have for Christ to be all my forgiveness and all my righteousness. But since I've been baptized into Christ... In chapter 6, since God will deliver me from this body of death in chapter 7, even though there is still a war going on inside of me, that's all true. I no longer stand, however, under any condemnation from God whatsoever. In this body of flesh resides a mind that serves the law of God, while my flesh serves the law of sin, but God is going to deliver me from this body. It will not be like this for eternity. What is new about me, according to Scripture, is that I abide in Christ now through baptism. Chapter 6, verse 3. 
So what has happened is that God has made a declaration about me for all eternity according to what His Son has done and who His Son is instead of according to who I am and what I have done. That's what has happened to the believer. God has made a declaration about us in light of His Son. And those who are in Christ by baptism, right? That's what He's saying, by salvation. They do not walk, that is, they don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now notice the way that's worded. That is not a condition you and I have to try to fulfill or can eventually believe or know that we're fulfilling. These are statements of fact. I do not walk according to the flesh. I walk according to the Spirit. The life of the one who is in Christ Jesus is not lived according to the flesh. That is, I am not a victim of my desires that lead to death. Period. We live instead according to the Spirit. We live not as victims of our sin, but as recipients of grace through faith. For, in verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, made me free from the law of sin and death. So, whether or not we stand under condemnation has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with where we are. The reason there is right now, even while I'm struggling with sin, no condemnation over me, is because I am in Christ. Believer, you are in Christ. This is, this is what he means by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel declares about believers. Faith in Jesus is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what determines whether I live under the law of sin, that is, condemned all the time under the law, or I live under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that's something that is done to us by God through the gospel, not something we attain or accomplish. Paul is starting to describe how the gift of the Spirit gives hope. That's what he's doing here. To the struggling, schizophrenic Christian from Romans chapter 7. So he establishes one more time that a divine action has happened to us. The gospel has made us free. God has changed who my Lord is, who has say over me. Our liberation, being made free, that is ours by virtue of being baptized into Christ, which is Paul's language there, is the work of God through the gospel, which Paul is calling here the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, notice, walking according to the Spirit is an objective fact about us. That's how God says we live now. It is not something we figure out how to do. Right? What could the law not do. What could it not do there in verse 4? The law could not give us life by making us quit sinning. Why? Because the law is weak? No. The law is the holy word of Almighty God. We were weak. The problem was in us. Our flesh 
can't handle the law. It can't meet it. It can't do it. We can't perform it perfectly from the heart, no matter how hard we try. And we do need to think about that because when we hear much of the law, we think, I, I can do that. I do that all the time. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not, you know, I, I don't do these things. What, what does it mean that I can't obey the law? Sure, I can obey the law. Beloved, anybody can do outward behavior. Anybody. A child can change their behavior. If for no other reason than to avoid consequences or wait until they don't have to hide what they're doing from you. Right? That's not what, when the Bible's talking about obeying the law, fulfilling the law, it's not talking about our outward actions anyway. It's talking about the perfect obedience to every single iota of God's word, not just in our actions, but from our hearts. We must have all the right motivations, all the right inclinations and desires and instincts. Our goodness must be perfect, not tainted by anything of the flesh. That is what Paul is talking about, the perfect obedience that comes from the heart. Again, anybody can change their actions if they want to badly enough. That's not what God is after. The problem is that the law doesn't change our hearts. What the law does is tell us the standard, what we must do. There are no batteries in it, if you will, to make us able to do it. Remember in chapter 2, for example, this has been what Paul's been driving at throughout the whole letter. He talks about people that, that uh, preach and teach against stealing and are themselves thieves. Right? So you, you can be one way outwardly and the complete opposite on the inside. God demanded perfect obedience to the law from the heart to our behavior in order for us to be reconciled to Him. So the question is, where is God going to get that kind of obedience from us, from humanity, if that's what is required? We have to know the answer to that or we only stand condemned. It was in the flesh of Jesus. It was in the life He lived on earth by becoming incarnate through the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is a integral to why Jesus became human flesh. Not just to die for us, but to live for us. Not just to be our ransom and our forgiveness, but our righteousness before God. Jonathan Grothy says the flesh, the human life of Jesus is the place and means by which God won the victory over sin and condemned it to its end. That's where the sacrifice of Jesus, the offering up of His sinful flesh, is the divine gift of grace which accomplishes in us what the law could not give life. In verse 4, the purpose for which the law was given, life, apparently we see here, which it could not accomplish, is the achieved result of the gospel, though, by God sending his son to become incarnate and die for all. And that has been accomplished in you, believer, for you, from the outside, happening to you. Even though right now what I am is a pilgrim on my way from death, which he says in Romans 6 in baptism, to final deliverance, which is promised to me in 725. In between there, I am basically what I have always been, but something has happened to me. A new declaration has been made about me. God worked in the medium of flesh, in the incarnate Christ, to condemn sin and redeem sinful flesh, in verse 3, so that we would walk as people that have a new orientation 
for living that is determined by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, by the way, not our inner beings, rather than walk by the flesh. In verse 5, 4, those who live according to the flesh, what is true of them? How do they live? Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So Paul's point here is not really our individual daily behavior. It's two different orientations of the mind, two different ways and motivations for living is what he's talking about here. That is where the true difference is between the flesh and the spirit in us, how we think, the orientation of our minds. This isn't mainly about two ways of behaving. He's not there yet. It's about two spheres of influence over us and the orientation in a person. Each sphere in which we could live, whether it's flesh or spirit, has its own thought patterns, its own words, its own deeds, its own motivations, because the mind is the center of our thoughts and our wills, and that leads to certain patterns of action, right? Paul isn't telling us here to look inside and try to behave according to this new kingdom that's now being imposed on us. That would just be law after finally being given the gospel. Paul is telling us things that are true about us and about the world. As believers, we've each been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and brought into Christ and into this new community. In Him, in Christ, in this new community of His, there is a new orientation, a new culture, and a new way of thinking and believing that are being swept up, or that we're being swept up into now as we walk from being baptized into Christ to our final deliverance from these sinful bodies. Those who live according to the flesh will behave and act the way they do because they are willing slaves to their desires who don't have the Spirit in them, leading them away from death, giving them a new reason for living. Those who live according to the Spirit have life in them. They're not dead inside. They have life in them. They are in Christ, a citizen of a new kingdom, where those in it have something those being controlled by their flesh do not have, and that is a desire that comes from heaven by the Spirit to submit to God and obey Him. Think about what chapter 7 taught us about the reality of our lives, warring between the flesh and the Spirit. He's not now going back on all that in chapter 8 to say, but all that having been given about the fact that, of course, you'll have this ongoing struggle. But if you don't change your behavior enough, you really should doubt whether you're in Christ. He's not undoing chapter 7, beloved. This is assurance in chapter 8. This is a chapter of assurance being given to us for our hope. Because we have the struggle of chapter 7 in us all the time. With this new identity in us from the Holy Spirit of God. So that we don't become despondent and quit and give in to our sin and go back to our flesh for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation in Romans 1. Not for progressive improvement. That is not the point of the gospel. You may be different or technically better than you were before. That doesn't mean that's the point of the gospel. 
that if you don't have that, you should doubt whether or not you're even saved. No. No, that's not the way the Bible's written. Six, for to be carnally minded, so that is what it means to live according to the flesh then, setting one's mind, the orientation of our lives on the flesh is the result of a carnal mind, an evil mind, a corrupted mind that is separated from God because it does not have the Holy Spirit of life. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's talking about the mind, the orientation of the mind. One way of living, one motivation for how a person thinks and acts is the result of being spiritually dead inside and therefore leads to death final. To be spiritually minded is first and foremost to be motivated by and orientated toward the new. There, there is life and peace, he says. Now, Paul hasn't mentioned peace. He hasn't used the word peace since all the way back in chapter 5, verse 1. That we have peace with God because we've been justified by His grace as a gift. In reality, chapters 5 to 7 and here coming into 8 are written to prove 5-1 to us. That new sense of direction and longing for righteousness that we have inside of us are alien. They don't come naturally to us. Human beings do not want to serve anyone or anything but themselves. This desire now to please God, this is alien. This is not natural. And when we continue to struggle with giving into our flesh when we know we shouldn't, we can end up feeling very disoriented and afraid and start to doubt and question just like Paul's detractors in Rome were doing. What were they saying? Remember, is the gospel that Paul preaches, is it really the power of God for salvation? Because it sure doesn't look like it. The adherents of Paul's gospel, this justified by grace as a gift, they aren't getting better in the here and now. We don't see this massive change of life in them. They aren't perfect, amazing, holy, righteous people. So is, is Paul's gospel, the way Paul preaches the gospel, is that any gospel at all? Is it really the power of God for salvation that looks completely weak? It is the power of God for salvation. Because in spite of all that, the gospel has given us peace with God. Period. We are living a new life inside of this old body because of what the gospel has done. Justified us by grace through faith apart from works. And remember, the basis of all this in chapter 8, what all this is flowing out of is this fact that right now, the struggling believer of seven is under no condemnation, even in light of that struggle. There are no threats here. You notice that? There are no ultimatums. These things are stated as facts. This is what is true of all who have been justified by Christ. Paul is telling us what is objectively true about us now that the Spirit abides in us. Where the Spirit is, is all these things, are all these things. We've been made into something new by God's Spirit. And beloved, the Spirit doesn't demand obedience like the law did. What does the Spirit do in me? It actually produces fruit. Galatians 5.22 
to 33, right? right? I, again, we stress this again. The good that comes out of me is the fruit of the Spirit in me, not my flesh. My flesh is my flesh. What I was born with, what is new in me, is producing the fruit out of me that is pleasing to God. Think about how that ought to practically affect our lives. We aren't in charge of the fruit that is produced by us. Therefore, that's another reason we walk by faith and not by sight. I trust that God is doing in me what He wants to do in me because the Spirit is in me. This is, this is the thinking, the knowledge that sets us free to love and serve our neighbors with everything we are and everything we have. I obey because I'm accepted, because I'm justified, because I'm safe, because I have peace with God, because I'm under no condemnation. So I don't get pinched, I don't get crushed for failing when I desire to do good. I'm no longer a slave to my flesh. I don't walk according to my flesh. I, even as the conflicted person of chapter 7, walk according to the Spirit, according to Romans 8. The Holy Spirit leads those who have received Christ into a new way of thinking. He doesn't drive us to conformity to rules. That's not how He works. And beloved, our behavior will most certainly be affected by all this. Absolutely. But that isn't the primary point of this passage. Paul will get to specific, practical, individual behavior at length in chapters 12 to 16. But that's not his purpose here. His purpose here is not our behavior. The purpose here is to introduce us to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God now abides in us because we've been baptized into Christ, into his death and raised to newness of life as he was. He's not writing to harass consciences, one commentary said, but to give a basis for hope. And so, We don't want to take Paul's words here and use them for what we could call a theology of glory. A a, a way of living that makes it all about us and our performance and our accomplishments and what we can do. These are the facts of our Christian life. We have peace with God right now, period. We are under no condemnation right now, period. Period. This new orientation of our mind teaches us that we can have joy in our afflictions, even while we're struggling and suffering in temptation and sin. It gets old. In all that, we have this sure and steadfast hope of eternal life through this objective, legal, and personal reconciling work of Jesus Christ for me in verse 7 because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law nor indeed can be you see that's the difference you see that it's not subject to the law of God nor indeed can it be so then in verse 8 those who are in the flesh cannot please God it's impossible to please God with your flesh and to be in the flesh To walk according to the flesh, it is impossible to please God there. Why can they not please God? Because they're literally unable to produce even the genuine desire to please God and obey Him. 
since they've not been given this new orientation by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Those who are outside of Christ don't have a true desire to please God from the heart. The Bible says about that they hate God. They're against Him, as any believer was at one time. Not only are they not subject to God's law, they literally can't be. Where the Spirit does not dwell, there cannot be a desire to please God from the heart, for real. It can't be there. Think about that. When God looks at the flesh, He finds nothing that is pleasing to Him, and therefore nothing that could potentially become pleasing to Him. There's nothing positive in my flesh. God is not responding to me when I get saved. He is saving me from what I am. It comes out of us by faith, and I trust in Jesus Christ, absolutely. But we need to understand what's actually happening there and why that's happening. It's not coming from the flesh. There's nothing good in the flesh. There's nothing in the flesh that says, you know what? I've decided that I want to obey this God and follow Him and please Him. That would be a good thing. And there's nothing good in the flesh. You realize how much of a miracle our salvation is, beloved? No person can please God unless that person has been made free by the gospel. Unless the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made them free, they cannot please God. Because what does that law say? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Listen again to 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Beloved, did you hear what we just read? Did you hear that? Stamp these words. Stamp them down in blood over your whole existence. The righteous requirement of God's holy and perfect law what it demands of us every second of every day has been fulfilled in us. It is finished. That is not why we are living the Christian life. To try to fulfill God's law with a little bit of a push from the Holy Spirit now that we're saved. That requirement is met. That's not our motivation. Why can those who are in the Spirit actually please God? Because God is pleased with Christ, in whom His requirement has been fulfilled for them. When you are falling short, when you realize that there's this desire in you to obey God and you're not meeting it, do you know what you do? You run back in to Jesus Christ, who fulfilled it for you. You aren't obeying. When the Bible says don't lie, we lie. When the Bible says don't murder, we murder and we hate because we get angry with people, so angry we'd like to kill them if we could. We lust when we're married, committing adultery. We are sinners. That is what we are in the flesh. And all that that demands of us that we cannot perform, and even if we were performing one part of it, we're guilty of breaking all the rest of it. All that it requires of me, beloved, it's fulfilled. Do you understand that you are safe 
in Christ, believer? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Or are you still trying to feel justified by performance? Stop it and live. The requirement has been fulfilled for us by another. Believe it. Believe it. Those who are in the Spirit can and do please God because the Spirit resides in those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus. Right? The first part of verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, Tony, there it is. See? You made it sound so good, and now there's this big fat if in there. Doubt. Navel gaze. Make sure you're in the if, man. No, beloved, the whole point of verses 1 through 8 was to tell us that this condition has been fulfilled. That's how he's saying it. Do you know what's true about you? If that's true about you, then blank, right? That's what Paul is doing here. The Spirit of God does dwell in you, believer. He does. Here is the result or the benefit of that. The second part of verse 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That, that's very important from a just a, a doctrinal standpoint, I guess, for our understanding. There is no such thing as a believer who does not have the Holy Spirit. Right? So if you have somebody in your ear or on the TV or in a book telling you that the reason you're not living the victorious Christian life is that technically you haven't been filled with the Spirit yet, that's damnable, unbiblical nonsense. Run from it. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is how God makes us His. It's not this magical force we get to do good things. It's how God marks us as His own. Paul is talking to every believing person that reads this letter. The Spirit is how God applies the work of Christ to us. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, which again is what Paul has been trying to say is true of believers. Hey, listen, Christ is in you now, right? The body... The fleshly carnal me that's still alive. If Christ is in me, do you know what this is? It's dead because of sin. In verse 10. Dead because of sin. So what is dead has no say over me whatsoever. It's dead. It can make no claim, bring about no sentence. It's dead because Christ is in me. So God is not judging me now based on this clay. It has no bearing whatsoever on my assurance or on my hope. Remember 7.17. The me that God counts as righteous by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus does not sin. That's what he was saying in 7.17. So hard to understand. The new me doesn't sin. The Spirit in me doesn't sin. And cannot, therefore, be destroyed by my flesh. In verse 10, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice what that said. It did not say, it did not say, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but you are alive because of righteousness. No. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness is it talking about? Jesus Christ's. That's verse 4. 
The Spirit is life in me because what He does in me is apply the righteousness of Christ by which I stand justified forever before Almighty God. This will only ever deserve hell. Ever. But the me that is new that God says is there by grace through faith is life. Because of His righteousness. The new orientation of my mind towards the things of God, rather than being a constant enmity with Him, you see that? That's not the means by which I become righteous enough for God to accept. Okay, It's there. It's not how I'm made righteous. It's not why I'm righteous. It is the result of the fact that in Christ, God has accepted me. And verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which you now understand is true, proving that, that first sentence of verse 11, that's been the point of verses 1 through 11, all right? But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is a callback to 725 being delivered from this body of death. So the whole point of the passage is to truly ground our hope for that deliverance in 725. To stamp it and seal it in the finished work of Christ proclaimed to us in the Gospel. Your struggle will make you think that you are not a Christian. And Paul is writing to say, do not go there. You are. The Spirit in you is life because of the righteousness of Christ He has imputed to your account. So don't stop believing. Don't run away. Don't doubt the sufficiency of Christ for you. Don't just say, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just sin anyway. Don't go to any of these places. Why? Because there is a guarantee of your individual personal resurrection. Notice this, beloved, that the glorious conclusion is not that our spirits, the inner mortal me, is alive and can work now to become holy. The glorious conclusion is that the spirit in me is life for me. So in light of the civil war in us, that's apparent from chapter 7 in particular, you have the apostle of Jesus Christ saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In light of that war, chapter 8, Paul doesn't want us to place our hope then in anything subjective, in any feelings, not in anything from our flesh, Place our hope only, exclusively in what has been done to us and declared by God about us in the gospel. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The spirit's work in us is to testify of Christ to us. Not in some general way, but as the very means of my forgiveness and my righteousness before God. As Tony Romano put in your name, you who have believed on Christ doesn't matter how deep then your struggle with sin is. Okay? It doesn't matter how deep the rabbit hole of the flesh goes 
in you who belong to Christ. The deliverance Paul rejoices about and takes all his heart in in 725 is guaranteed in 8, 1 through 11. Precisely because the same Holy Spirit that was there very early on Easter morning that raised the literal body physically, literally of Jesus from the dead, he will also raise our mortal, struggling, sinful bodies from the dead one day. Either from the earth when Christ returns if we're still alive, or from six feet under the earth when Christ returns and the dead rise first. The Holy Spirit, who is associated with this change of lordship we noticed in 6 and 7, that has made us free. And so He determines the new orientation of our minds in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8 dwells in each believer in whom that has taken place and gives us the assurance, therefore, of future resurrection in verses 9 through 11. Okay? It's settled. It's settled. Glory to God. The work of the Holy Spirit is crucial then in each one of us accomplishing our own sense of reconciliation to God. It's through Him that we call God Abba, Father. Despite the ongoing war between the old and the new in us, we live with a sure and certain hope in the promise of future resurrection because the Spirit of God lives in us now. Once Paul's premise that the Spirit dwells in us is proven, then there can be no doubt whatsoever about our future resurrection. I don't know how God is going to raise up this body. But He will. And He'll transform it into a glorious body. Where there is no sin. Where there is no right, where there is only righteousness. Where there is no decay. There's no sickness. There's no desire fighting against the Spirit in you. He will transform this lowly body into a glorious one. And as you sit in this room this morning, believer, that is true for you as surely as the sun will rise. Because our God doesn't lie. God will wake us up one day. Hope for the believer has been given a sure and a certain basis. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us right now, presently, in this mortal body, that's the guarantee, the down payment for the future resurrection of this body into life eternal. The Spirit will produce His fruit in us, but the ground of our hope is not the change. It is the fact that the indwelling Spirit proves that we now live under the reign and under the say-so of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are owned by Him. And He will lose none that are in His hand. Not one. And should you stray out to the cliffs and to the heights, away from the flock, He will come and find you there. We are owned by Him. We are alive because we've been joined to the likeness of His resurrection (laughs) by the same Spirit whose power raised Him from the dead also. We celebrate that, and we should, glory to God, celebrate Easter. But Easter was yours too. The Spirit is saying, 
that, that's going to happen to you one day. Run to Christ then. Receive Him, you who deny Him. What are you going to do? How are you going to stand before God? Because you will. Receive Him. This is free. It's all free. Receive Him and His work for you by His Holy Spirit and have hope that is sure and certain for your future, which sounds very nice as we roll into 2023.